Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. We're a year into the pandemic. I hope you're doing well. Um, things are okay here. I'm about to get my first shot. Probably will have had it by the time you hear this podcast. We booked flights so my kids can go see their grandparents at the end of June. I hope all of you are on a similar path. Uh, I wish you all well. As you know, if you listen to this podcast, we spent a lot of time over the last year talking about how the pandemic is changing the media landscape. We did a lot of those conversations early last spring as things were really sort of settling in. Um, and we kept that theme up throughout the year. I thought it'd be good for us to come back and talk to the folks we talked to a year ago, see how the predictions held out, what they got right, what they got wrong. So we've got three good conversations here. The first was with Brian Windhorst from ESPN basketball analyst and just a good smart guy to talk about sports media in general. He's also the last guy I talked to in person uh, doing this podcast. So that was a little bit of a trip down memory lane. I also talked to Bijan Steven, who's a very smart guy who writes about streaming and the Twitch and how they're not exactly the same thing, but they're kind of the same thing for The Verge. And also Rich Greenfield, uh, the analyst who talks to us about TV and movies and gaming and a little bit about his new venture fund as well. Three good conversations, all for the same low, low price of zero dollars. Let's get to him now. Here's Brian Windhorst. Talking to Brian Windhorst for ESPN, who I last saw in person on March 11th, 2020. We we're just reminiscing, but we'll do it on on microphone now. Uh, we both <laughs> remember that conversation pretty well. It was the last time I interviewed anyone in person, and you said it was the last time you had a lunch indoors? Yeah, I, you know, I really, you mean real talk here, Peter? I was in New York City that week, and I was really lucky to dodge it. I really, really was, because New York, we didn't really understand at that time, but New York was um, was really, a, it, it, was, it was getting really bad there, and um, it could have gone another way, you know, and at that time, if you came down with it, you know, the treatments weren't there, like it was a real, you know, I, I'd like to think I'd have been okay, I'm in my 40s, but... Um, uh, I consider myself really fortunate to having been in New York in in March, and gotten out, and gotten out, and 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 dodged it. And so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, I when I came to see you at at uh, Vox headquarters, um, I had lunch. I don't even remember where it was. It was at a French bistro, and that was March 11th. And I had I have not eaten inside a restaurant since. <laughs> Keep up the, yeah. the the streak until everyone's yeah. safe and vaccinated. Um, I do think about that a lot, how I remember what it was like that week where we were all definitely concerned about the virus, but we were sort of tracking it geographically. And the thought was, well, it's coming from China. And so it's a little, there's some in Seattle and that seems very scary and a couple cases in California. And it, you know, with my lizard brain, I just thought, oh, it'll sort of slowly move. And of course it was here in New York in huge numbers and we didn't realize it yet. Um, it's one of the many things we didn't get about how the virus was going to affect the country. And you and I, obviously we were talking about sports, we were talking about the NBA and the notion at the time was the NBA was considering or was going to have to start hosting some games without fans. Mm -hmm. That was the thought. And, yes. and then sort of midway through our conversation, I've got a quote here from you now. You said, if even one player comes down with coronavirus, the NBA would suspend instantaneously because of the cascading effect of quarantines. And we sort of thought that was maybe a future thing. And then, of course, yeah. a couple hours later, that's exactly what happened. Um, and I'm interviewing you, but I'm monologuing here. But that, to me, was, and I think for a lot of people, was the moment that the, the NBA shut down was the moment when a lot of Americans said, oh, 
this is a thing. This is a real thing. It's affecting the country. It's moving very quickly. What's your memory of that that afternoon and evening? Yeah, so, um, I, you know, the thing about it is, is that I felt that it was a no-brainer for these leagues to shut down. When I was saying that, I wasn't, ass- I wasn't assuming that it was going to be shut down for months on end. I thought it was mm-hmm. going to be shutting down for maybe a month. And so um, I was on television pretty loudly saying that the NCAA should delay the NCAA tournament, that the conference tournament should be uh, put on hold. I remember um, the next day was a Thursday, and uh, the Players' Championship had actually started. And so I remember saying they've got to stop it. You know, I mean, they're playing holes right now, but they're going to have to stop it. And I was saying that I genuinely believed it because I thought it was the right thing to do. But I didn't think that it was a hard decision because I didn't think it was going to be for so long. So um, even though I felt like I was maybe a little bit ahead of the curve, I was also naive in, in, in what we were seeing. Yeah, I remember you saying, oh, and, you know, China, it took them a couple months to get this under 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 control, and they they have games again, and so that's what we should be looking at that kind of yeah. timeline. Yeah, I was, and um, it, it turned out that the Chinese sports didn't really get started either. I thought they were about to start after being shut down for six weeks. It turned out they didn't start for several more months after that. So there's it was such a tough decision because the sports calendar, especially – for the big events like the NCAA tournament um, is so set in, in a, in a cicada rhythmic fashion that breaking the rhythm is difficult and extraordinarily costly. And that's the one thing I think that everyone had to, has had to come to real big terms with is um, that we don't have the luxury of being able to do that type of planning, at least for the short term. And, 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 and that was what, I thought, like, I, I remember the NCAA tournament was canceled. I thought they were crazy. I was like, well, why don't we just play the NCAA tournament in May? What, why you have to cancel it? I remember they canceled the British Open. I want to say before the end of March, they canceled the British Open. I was like, the British Open is in July. Why mm-hmm. are we canceling it now? It seems crazy. Um, but that's the thing. And, and it's been something I've been tracking um, because I am scheduled, keyword scheduled, to cover the Olympics. I was scheduled to cover the Olympics last year. And watching the way the Olympics tries to handle this, it's a reminder of these are like big, giant um, oil tankers. They just don't – sports leagues and sporting events that are really big and have a lot of money don't maneuver quickly. And that's one thing we've been struggling with. Remind us what the current status of the the Tokyo Olympics is. Uh, I know they're loath to to say one thing or another definitively. What is the current official line? They're gonna they're gonna have it. Um, it is it's the happening. definition. It's the Confirmed. definition of too big to fail. But um, it has been reported. It's not official. I believe it'll be official by the end of the month. But there's not going to be outside spectators allowed from foreign countries. And I would just say, having read some of the literature that's been passed out to media, been following the press conferences and the official statements, I think I can say pretty plainly: the Japanese don't want people coming to their country. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so what does that mean for you? Are you are you going to cover it from uh, from Omaha? If we don't have access to the players, and it's all virtual, I don't see the point in going. Yeah, but I suspect that that will not be the case. You that, think there'll, um, there'll be some wiggle room? That, that there will. I think. First off, I think the vaccine is going to be prevalent by uh, by July. But you know, it's been fascinating to watch Japan because Japan is you know they're a very insular country. Um, they are an island, and even though they are very much on the world stage and very much of a global hub, 
the end of the day, they're on, they are an island. So I think that they would love to get off the hook here. I do not think that they want these games, but they understand that it's like nine or $10 billion. Or I don't even know how much it is. Plus the Japanese, this is about reputation too. Sure. Um, and, you know, <laughs> talking to my friends in China, you know, there's another Olympics coming six months later in Beijing. Uh, the Winter Olympics is in January or February in Beijing. And the Chinese will be ready for that, Peter. The Chinese are going to have that Olympics. And so there's also the whole thing is, what if we didn't stage the Summer Olympics? Mm-hmm. And then the, the Chinese, Chinese come by six bad. months later and then pulled off without a hitch. All of those things are in play. But, you know, I think it's, you can't be sure of anything in this day and age. I think you'd be pretty sure that on July 24th, there is an opening ceremonies in Tokyo. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know who's going to be there, but I say it's going to happen. So let's quickly review what happened in the last year. You said these things are slow moving. Tankers are hard to move around. The NBA shut down and then reopened in this bubble in Disneyland that we have talked about, Disney World. And by all accounts, real success. Uh, No one got sick, as far as I know. They didn't have to cancel any games. NBA made some of the money back that they had lost. Uh, Ratings were, I guess, okay, not great. Um, It was was great to have it as a consumer because there was nothing else going on. Um, And it seemed like they had proven that that's a way you can do sports in a pandemic and with reasonable success. And then it seems like all the other major leagues said, we're not going to do that. It's too difficult to pull off. And they all did a version of their normal sports league. And the main, the, with the two main differences, there's generally no fans in the stands or limited fans in the stands. And then these protocols um, that essentially kept knocking players and teams out of play periodically and still happening now in, in college basketball. Um First of all, am I missing anything in my summary of, of pro and, and, and big-time college that, sports? That's, that's about right. Um, do you think, what, first of all, why could any of the other leagues, which generate billions and millions of dollars, replicate what the NBA did, including the NBA? They, the NBA didn't do the bubble for their season that they're in right now. It was too expensive and too restrictive. So, um, you know, I, I, like I saw people talking about, oh, well, the ratings were down and um, this was down. Well, let me tell you what the ratings were better than. The ratings were better than if there had been no games whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So while the, the, bubble, the bubble cost tens of millions of dollars, um, I think it was, I can't remember, I, I had the number and reported it, but I just don't remember. I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood, give me some wiggle room, of a, about $1.5 million a day is what it cost the NBA to put that um, event on. Of course, they made significantly more than that per day mm-hmm. on all the games that they put on television. So it was operating in the black. They certainly were in the red overall, but they're a lot less in the red than they would have been um, had they not had it at all. And so I think what happened was, especially by the fall, even the summer and fall, when baseball and football were making up their minds, our our numbers in the country had really dropped. Um, we went through a period in, in the late summer and fall where we weren't in such a bad place. And I think that made it more feasible for baseball and football to go forward. By the time the numbers started really shooting back up in the fall, baseball was over and football was, you know, was committed. And, um, you know, the NBA uh, and the NHL have both, uh, you know, borne the brunt of um, the increased numbers and, the difficulty of uh, traveling. Um, I mean, the, the schedules that there's, you know, the NHL 
has established because of cross-border issues. They've established a Canadian division and then basically an American division. Because you're literally not supposed to be able to travel between those two countries. They aren't, right? Right now, the NHL is operating in this weird bifurcated world where there's teams playing in Canada who don't play the teams in the United States. So uh, this is basically, you know, they've had they've had some some teams get shut down. But on balance, you know, the NBA, I think, has had somewhere in the neighborhood of 34 or 35 games postponed. Um, they've played hundreds. And uh, part of the postponements were due to the weather in Texas. It wasn't all COVID-related. And so they're still going to be ahead. Um, it's It's been a difficult slog, but they're still in way better shape than, in, than had they, A, not played at all, or B, gone and played in a bubble where it would have been extremely restrictive and extremely expensive. And so that's what they've done. They've, they've minimized their losses the best they can and sort of limped their way through it. So like I said, I'm, I'm really enjoyed having basketball to watch uh, this summer, just the novelty of being able to watch sports. And, and the game seemed as good as ever, maybe in some cases better. And uh, you didn't really miss the fans because the way they shot the thing and then they did a good, good job of faking it with the crowd noise. And then I watched some NFL, and there you could at least see empty stands. Um, it didn't seem like the entertainment value was really reduced in any way, but the ratings in general for pro sports have, have dropped, mm-hmm. um, which I normally chalk up to, all right, that's just the same reason, you know, people are cutting the cord, et cetera. But here I, I thought, I think many others did, that people would be so starved for entertainment, they'd be flocking to sports, flocking for, you know, desperate for a diversion. Why, why do you think ratings drop down for sports? I don't have a good answer for you. Um, I do think that there is a there was a break in the cycle. I do think that was part of it. Um, but I think the NBA was stunned at how poor their ratings performed. And again, I'll reiterate that the ratings that they got were a heck of a lot better than 0.0 mm-hmm. and 0.0 uh, TV dollars, which they were looking at. Um, but it totally put them off the concept of ever, because, you know, they had, and I think we even talked about it a year ago, Peter, how this, uh, the NBA could, could change its schedule and to try to get out of the way of um, of the NFL in the fall and start later and try to own more of the summer. Um, because, you know, between the end of the NBA finals in in late June and the start of football season at the end the of fallow August. fallow period, yeah, just yeah, so, so the end, you know, which sort of just not unimportant baseball games, but just sort of routine baseball games, no games of consequence. And there was a thought that, you know, why should the NBA duke it out with the NFL for a couple of months when they could just push back to uh, starting in December? Well, the ratings in July and August were just really not good. And then when they when they were having playoff games going up against uh, NBA games, I'm sorry, NFL games, they were getting slapped. So they junked that right out. And Adam Silver, the commissioner, has come out just, just within the last week and said, uh, we will be returning to our normal schedule uh, as fast as possible, which is next fall. And this year, they are really squeezing it in, Peter. Um, the NBA Finals is scheduled to go up until two, I think, two or three days before the start of the Olympics. Um, and they do not want to fight with they do not want to have finals games with fighting up against gymnastics and track and field mm-hmm. and swimming and uh, that kind of stuff that we know NBC is going to get huge even even on, even on tape delay it'll do well. It doesn't even matter. Um, yeah. And so, like, if there's a shutdown for various teams or or games are lost in the coming months here, I I can't say for sure what will happen, but I suspect they would they will junk games as opposed to extending 
the schedule. Because the schedule is that important for them. Just the finals ratings are very important. Yeah. Finals ratings are very important. So the NBA does this does this one off thing in a bubble. I guess the the uh, the March Madness is, will, will be bubble like, but nothing like what what the NBA did with real strict protocols about who can go in and go out. Everyone else just does a version of what they were doing with more testing, um, basically muddled through it. So we're getting to widespread vaccine distribution in the next few months. Do we just go back to pro big-time sports as normal? Does anything that happened in the last year affect what happens in the future? I think two things are going to be very interesting to watch for the end of this NBA season and into the future. Number one, the vaccines. I don't think a lot of players are – I shouldn't say a lot. That's a, tough word, that's a tough way to characterize it. I think we're going to see pushback from NBA players on taking the vaccine. There is um, – there is resistance, significant resistance, as far as I can tell. And the reason that the vaccine is so important to the NBA is not because of players getting COVID. I mean, that's a concern, of course, but it's what happens when a player gets COVID. Um, when teams have had to shut down for a week at a time, um, there have been a couple of occasions where, where teams have had multiple players, four or five players uh, come down with it. But most of the time what happens is one or two players will will be diagnosed and five, six, seven, eight guys will be put into contact tracing and they will have yep. to quarantine. The CDC has come out and said, and Adam Silver has ratified this, if you have if you are fully vaccinated, you do not need to quarantine when you come in contact with an infected person. And in a lot of cases, it isn't even players. There's a bunch of players who have been put into quarantine. It's a trainer. Yes. Um, in the case of the All-Star Game, we had Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid miss the All-Star Game because the barber that they both saw before going to Atlanta, they went to this barber who gave them their haircuts, their good haircuts before being on at the All-Star Game. He came down with it. It wasn't even another player. Mm -hmm. And so the NBA, if it had to halt its playoffs, or this is what's really difficult, is potentially take you know two or three key players off of a team and put them into quarantine – not because they're diagnosed, but because they were exposed. And then it puts the NBA in an impossible position. How do you decide whether a playoff series should go on? Uh, you know, is there a competitive disadvantage? Or yeah, the NFL had a version of this where it was a Denver had no quarterbacks at one point because of quarantine. Right, right. And that was a regular season game, which was yep. unfortunate. But imagine if that happened in a playoff game. How, how can you play it? And so the NBA is going to have to have a negotiation with these players and that's going to be complicated. Um, the players, frankly, a lot of the players just don't trust it. And they have a, a number of retired players like Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar have done public service announcements with the vaccine. To this point, NBA players have not. They have, uh, from what I've been told, some of them have even rejected it. And this is, this just to spell this out, the NBA is a black league's majority of black players and, and, and black Americans are, are in some cases more vaccine resistant is the term we use. Yes. Doc Rivers, the coach of the 76ers, has been very eloquent about this and talking about the complexity of, of it. And the, the NBA has had their doctors speak to every single team to give the players information. But I still think this is going to be a hard sell. Because they what, can't compel the players to take the vaccine. That's right. right. So the union think, won't allow it, and then sort of culturally it, it won't work. That's right. And the, the NBA has even come out and said, we're not going to mandate this. But what I think is going to do is, you know, right now players are only allowed to go to their homes or to the arenas 
when they go on the road, they can't leave their hotels other than to go to the arena. So it may be one of these situations where they say, listen, if you want to go to a restaurant or you want to avoid contact tracing or you want to you know, be able to go to a club or you want to be able to leave your hotel, you have to get the vaccine. And it may end up being, as crude as this sounds, it may end up being like horse trading. Like if you or guys are willing to get the vaccine, we'll let you mm -hmm. start going to restaurants. If you're willing to give not give the vaccine, we'll let you start um, going to other places and seeing other friends and family while you're home. But it's going to be a very delicate thing, especially for the playoffs, because that's where the NBA needs to have all their players, needs to have competitive games, and can't afford Peter to push it out because there's no room. So that's a near-term negotiation, right? Yes. And presumably the other leagues will have it. In So that's 2021. 22, 23, assuming we don't have another global pandemic, but we could. Do are we is sports does sports look and feel the same way it did in, in 2019? No. So here's what I think, and this is even I think medium term. The other big thing that I think you will see with pro sports, and I think it will happen with a lot of uh large-scale events or border crossings, is health passports. There are already um and there are apps that are being used by some NBA teams. And maybe other teams, too, I'm not really familiar with outside the NBA. There's a series of these apps that are already in use, but I'm, I'm sure there will be some market leaders that will develop. I know that one is called Clear, um, where... Which you guys already see in the airports. It's the same company, right? I don't know if it's the same company, okay. Peter, I'm to guessing. be honest with you. Um, so the, the concept is uh, you use this facial recognition. That's your, you know, your phone scans your face, so it says this is who this is. Mm -hmm. And that will be linked to uh, recent health questions. In other words, you answer questions about your whether you've had a fever or you've you know yep. felt ill, coughed, what have you, linked to COVID negative tests, linked to eventually, I think, your vaccine record. And what that will do is it's a third party that basically says, we verify that this person is yep. who they say they are, has had a negative COVID test and has had vaccine, in this recent time and it generates a QR code and so you can you can be admitted to a sporting event or a concert or the United States of America or the United Kingdom or your office and, yes exactly and so i think sporting events will pioneer this because for the most part they want to have those fans in there and um they're already using i know the golden state warriors are already using it uh, they're not allowing fans in but they are allowing media in and the media have to have a negative COVID test to come into each game and they use that app. And, you know, you know, and I would assume that this, I'm talking a little bit outside of my realm, but there might even be a point where just like your, when you board a plane back when I used to do that, you know, there would be a QR code that you would have for your boarding pass. Yep. That would also have your TSA pre information in there. I could see your health passport, all embedded, all in the same. Yeah, thing. I can see my colleagues who 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 cover privacy all day uh, uh, at Recode uh, freaking my out. My wife's about a privacy attorney, and I also don't know how they're going to get that data. I mean, I'm going to get my shot on Thursday, March 11th, and I, I think they're just going to give me a piece of paper. So I'm trying to figure out how it's that's a all card. Get I mean, I've yeah. seen them. They, there's a little vaccine card, and the person who gives it to you rights on there like i know yep. there's there, there's letters and numbers they they must mean something i don't know what they mean so it's hard to imagine getting a database but but um i have been thinking for a year about you know i think it'll be very diff i think some people will try to mandate 
um, some sort of vaccine requirement to do something and they'll get sued. But I think there'll be a lot of optional stuff like going to games and it'll be really interesting to see which leagues adopt that, which communities adopt that. If that's something where, you know, I can imagine that working pretty reasonably well for the 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 Warriors in San Francisco and maybe not so much in a red state. Uh, maybe maybe more difficult of a sell in Dallas for an NFL game. Who knows? Um, we'll see. So you think vaccines will be uh, vaccine, vaccine passports, health passports will be a part of pro sports for the rest Certainly of Certainly to, to attend games. Yeah. Um, I think it will become more normal, and um, I all I also I, th- I think this is the big what you just said. You said a mouthful there is that in the NBA they have 28 different markets, and the NBA and I'm sure the other sports leagues are in the same boat. The NBA, by the way, has kind of gotten the sharp end of the stick here on this because it it hit them in their you know they, it has affected them for two seasons um, dramatically. Uh, the NHL to an extent as well, obviously. Um, whereas, uh, baseball and, and the NFL, it, you know, the, the baseball is sort of going to have a regular season. The NFL's already had a regular season. So, um, uh, the NBA will have to be at the tip of the spear on the vaccine matter as well. Um, you know, they will be doing it, but I th- I do think it's going to be like, we, you know, there's a whole thing about, about photo identification and about all kinds of verification, but you have to have that to do certain things in this country, like get on a plane. And if you want to do certain things in this country, like go to a sporting event, go to a concert, I do think it's going to be one of the things that you're just going to have to yield yourself to so that everybody who goes there feels some level of protection, just like we all go through security so that we all feel the same level of protection when we get on a plane. Let's check in on this at some point in the future. I'm assuming you have not been on a plane in the last year? Since the day after I saw you, I flew okay. home so and I have not will, been on a plane. We will see each other in person somewhere and we may or may not yes. record that conversation. Thank you, Brian right. Be safe. Thank you, Peter. Take care. Thanks again to Brian. We're going to hear from B. John Stephen in one minute, just after we hear from a fine sponsor. I'm here with B. John Stephen from The Verge, my guide to all things streaming. Welcome, B. John. Hi, I'm back. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to see you. I still haven't seen you in real life, but it's it's going to happen. I don't know <laughs> if it'll happen this calendar year. <laughs> yeah, we're we're looking back over the last year uh, about things that happened, things that didn't happen, things we thought were going to happen. And last May, 2020, we talked about streaming and how it was Twitch's moment for a bunch of reasons that seemed super obvious at the time. People right. were at home. People needed things to do. People were into gaming, all those things combined to make Twitch and live streaming more interesting. And we sort of assumed that there'd be a big boom in live streaming and Twitch over the last year. So question one, Bijan Steven, did that boom happen? You know, that's a really good question. I think the answer is yes. It's basically, I feel like uh, one of those things where uh, it, it was at once an obvious prediction, but also like, I didn't think it was going to get this big, so I um, I get these regular data reports from my man Chase over at Stream Elements. Um, he used to be a Twitch guy, and his, he is a global emote on Twitch, which is fun. It's uh, he, The last time I saw him, he told me it was the least used global emote on Twitch. <laughs> so if you're on there right now, please uh, drop a Chase in the chat, wherever you are. But yeah, so I think uh, the kind of the incredible thing is, like, Twitch kept growing over the last year. It, like, it was... You know, there were record highs like all year, every month. So you talk about uh, record highs, that number of people using it total, number of people who are on at I any think, given time. 
I, it's 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 hours watched is the metric mm-hmm. that I think um, people people like to use. So uh, we can we can do a year over year comparison. Let's see. Um, I'm looking at the the data here. Uh, yeah, Twitch increased 117 percent in hours watched year over year. So last January it was 941 million hours watched, which is a lot. Look, that's like a lot of people and spending a lot of time. This January it, we the we Twitch had over two billion watch hours. That is sort of an astonishing, like, growth. I don't know. So it's, you, it's one of usage things. is more than doubling. Usage is right? more than doubling. And, and, it's, it's and not, do we think that's more people streaming? Or do you think it's people who are streaming, they're locked in their house, and they're just saying, all right, I'll spend a couple more hours streaming on Twitch, because why not? I would guess it's a little bit of both. Um, I, I think... Uh, you know, like there are many people who stream on Twitch and then never stream again. Uh, so that that sort of inflates the numbers, and I can imagine those probably went up. And I, there are stats for those. I don't have them handy, unfortunately. That's all right. Well, well we're talking in feelings instead of numbers. Yeah, yeah. I love I love feelings chat. But yeah, I think um, I think there were definitely more people streaming, but people were just spending a lot more time on the site. Like it's like you don't get that kind of growth, you know, without massively increasing the user base. And I don't think the user base increased by that much, at least on the mm-hmm. viewer side. Maybe on the viewer side. I don't know, but I, I've so over the last year I've been talking to streamers about um, you know what like just for different things in different interviews. But one of the things I always ask is you know how has quarantine affected your numbers? And most of them, like especially the the biggest people, have said you know they've seen like small but significant increases. And I think if that's like a site wide trend, you know it makes sense that more people are spending more time on the site. Also, it's like it's it's like a it's sort of like a podcast, not this podcast. But a podcast where you put it on the background, you don't really pay attention. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just like ambient sort of human interaction. So streaming has long been associated with gaming. It's you, yes. you watch someone play a video game, they talk about it, you watch them. Um, and for a long time, um, Twitch and other streaming platforms have been trying to broaden that out. Um, and there's occasional interest by the NBA or whoever to sort of bring their product to streaming and see if they can branch out. And mm-hmm. I think when we talked before, it was still pretty much a thing that people used predominantly for gaming and gaming-related conversations. Is that still the case? Yeah, I think that's still the case. I mean, I will say the biggest single category on Twitch is just chatting, which is like the catch-all category for people doing um, things that aren't gaming. So, I mean, there there are... A so that's just you other, and me talking with other people. Just chatting. It's like, yeah, yeah, chatting, vlogging, like interacting with chat. And I think it's interesting because a lot of people cycle in and out of it because like, you know, you the best practices on Twitch is you don't stay in just chatting when you're playing a game because it's like, it's not quite the right thing. That's not what that category is for. But um, it's it is the biggest category of tuition. It saw the most growth over the last year. So I think I think yes, there is still a lot of gaming because you know you combine all the games because their games are their own separate categories. You combine all the games. That's a lot of people watching games. But like they, the site has a robust um, chatting section. It has a really robust music section. Um, if you go to Twitch these days, like you know, like seven out of ten times you're going to see a DJ or another you know a band playing music uh, on the front page. You know, it's it's like. It, so they've invested heavily in music. They've invested heavily in chatting. I think they have like, you know, I think the creative community has grown. I was actually looking at the numbers for makers and crafting yesterday, um, which is the, like it used to be known as hobbies and crafting. But it's like, you know, it's the category where like people who make things make things live. Um, and I'm going to do some pottery that, for you live. live yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pottery, embroidery, woodworking. Uh, I've seen people repair cars. Like it's all, there's a lot of stuff there. But even that, like, it, that started in, I think, September of 2018 when they renamed it. And um, 
it grew from like approximately like 500 viewers then to 1,500 now. You know, so like the, everything is sort of on an upward trend, no matter where you look on the site. So gaming is this huge category. And I think by this point, anyone who listens to a podcast like this, anyone who's interested in sort of understanding digital media knows that gaming is this big category. And whether you're looking at number of hours or number of dollars, it's this huge business. It's still weirdly like a niche it's covered as if it's a niche subset of culture and, you know, it's something kids do and maybe it's about who's doing it or who's reporting on it. Um, it still doesn't get the same kind of attention that, you know, a movie does and the movie industry does. Um, so I'm assuming that, that Twitch and Twitch to me and streaming feels like several tiers below that. Like as, as many hours as you're going to tell me people are spending on Twitch, mm -hmm. it still seems like a niche subset of the culture. Does that feel right to you, that description? Um, it feels right, but only, it, it depends on who you ask. I mean, because I think, I think what, what's happening there in, with gaming, you know, gaming is like more accessible than Twitch, as, as you just pointed out, and I think that's true. But Twitch specifically is really interesting because like you ask like anybody under the age of like 27, mm -hmm. uh, they're going to know Twitch streamers. And it's, it's like one of these things where it's sort of like uh, online influence is just influence now. Like, a, being a Twitch streamer is just being a big person online, which has become its own sort of category. So I think, you know, like, people are maybe, like, people are as familiar with Pokemon as they are with, like, Dream or, like, any of these other, like, you know, big creators. But, like, it's, it's sort of in the same category as your favorite, like, sort of Instagram model. Um, and these are, these are people who, like, are just sort of known around the internet. And this is also why, like, you see, um, like, people like AOC when you know, joining Twitch and doing mm -hmm. it, like doing Among Us with like the biggest Twitch streamers on the site and some of the biggest personalities on the site, not necessarily even the biggest streamers. But that's the kind of influence that I'm talking about. It's like, it's it's much more like, it, there's like a generation gap. And I What did you think of that AOC moment where she went live on Twitch? I thought it was fantastic. She's, she, I mean, she's obviously incredibly magnetic and very fun to watch. And I think, you know, uh, I liked that all of the Twitch streamers were super starstruck because, you know, they're, it was big for them too and it was it was just like a really nice moment for twitch and i you know the chats i checked into a few of the different chats and they seemed pretty okay and it was like you know it, it seemed like a genuine moment of um joy for the site and it's interesting that there is still like a site culture for a site that big like there's still like you know it it's because i think of it, it hasn't gotten that far from its roots um as like a smaller more insular thing with these like specific faces and names and you know from the old days, but I think I think it was great, and I think you know I think this is like this is the future in a way where it's like I can imagine somebody like Pokemon quitting streaming to do like movies or something in a couple of years, but it truly is just like a generation gap because like there are millions and millions of people who care about these people, and it's like you know if you care about YouTube or you care about if you care about making things online, like you're, you're going to know like at least a few Twitch streamers because like the other thing is Twitch isn't most people's like like most online creators' main thing. It's like, you know, maybe they do YouTube and like they have a Twitch channel on the side because like sometimes making videos gets boring. They want to stream stuff. But it's like it's it's there's not just sort of one format. But even even among the people that I think are known as Twitch streamers, I think it's just a generation gap thing. Um, because, again, I wouldn't have known had I not been covering the space. I've been paying attention to Clubhouse recently. Oh, boy. OK. That's my job. And in one way, it strikes me as like, oh, this is like live streaming, except it's for old people and it's it's audio mm -hmm. only. Um, but also one of the things that I, and one of the things I wrote about was how hyper aware the early users who've gotten on in the last year are about sort of what 
what the platform might be able to do for them and how to take advantage of it, whether it's monetizing or mm -hmm. building out their brand. There's endless Clubhouse rooms about talking about building your brand on Clubhouse. And there is now obviously, um, or not obviously, but there is now a, an ecosystem of people who want to make money. Uh, there are you know, collectives who are trying to figure out how to make money on Clubhouse and Clubhouse experts. I'm assuming all those things exist on Twitch, right? I just haven't seen them. I'm not getting pitched about them. Are there are there people who are trying to help you make money or make a I, living? And yes, there there are. But it's like the thing that is interesting about Twitch, and I think the thing that people don't really talk about is how unequal the like Twitch and larger creator economy is. Um, so yes, there are a bunch. Of, like if you Google how to get big on Twitch, on and you'll end up with a bunch of YouTube videos from a bunch of different mm -hmm. people most of whom sort of know what they're talking about. You know, it's like, it's, this is, but it's also sort of a cottage industry for those people to keep making those videos. The thing about Clubhouse that's interesting, I did actually tweet that it was Twitch for Boom, or yeah, Twitch for Boomers. There we go. The other day. I, I didn't steal like, it from yeah, you. That's I, what it is. I came to that on my own. Thank you. Yeah, no, I know. I know it's a pretty obvious insight, right? Yes. But I think, the, I think that we see those conversations on something like Clubhouse because, um, because like everyone has seen the mistakes of like Twitter and Vine. You know, it's like, all of those people had, like abandoned that website because you know, tw like Twitter wouldn't pay them, and it's just like you know you lost a whole class of creators to YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think you know social sites are now like it, it's sort of a built-in question like are you going to value the people who make the things for your platform, um, like the, the person who made the whale moan room on Clubhouse? Are you going to pay him for their engagement? And it's like you know this is an open question for platforms and for creators. I also think, you know, again as I was just saying, the creator economy is a super, 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 super unequal place. Like, I cannot express to you how much it mirrors the actual economy. Um, like, it's, I saw a stat the other day where it's like, if you have, like, 15 viewers, 15 concurrent viewers on Twitch, you're in the top, like, 3% of streamers on the site. Um, and it's, it's like, you know, you can, like, if you change that to people who stream regularly, it goes up to, like, maybe, like, 30 viewers or 40 viewers and you're in the top, you know, and it's it's like there are a lot of people who like seem like they're very successful, which they are, you know, like ha like having a big audience is a is a hard thing, and it's very hard to maintain a community. But um, there are a lot of people who do not make a living off of this thing, and I think it's like very important to emphasize that. Um, and this feels like a tangent, but it's not really. But like mm -hmm. most Twitch partners aren't making a living streaming on Twitch. It's a thing they're Twitch doing partners. for fun or to extend something else they're doing anyway. Right, but, well, but it's like, it's not enough, I mean, I mean it in the sense that it's not enough money to like be their main income uh -huh. most of the time. And like, you know, Twitch partners are the verified class of the site. They, you, to be a partner, you have to average 75 viewers and have like a, you know, stream a certain amount of hours and like have all this, you have to hit like hit all these metrics, right? Um, and Twitch sort of has gamified the process and shows you sort of how to do it. But anyway, like, I think, I think, people on Clubhouse have realized that like, okay, this is another channel for my brand. I can maybe make some money here. I need to start asking these questions. Um, and I think, I think that's just like a, a, another generational thing. It's like the people who were on like YouTube and got sort of screwed by algorithm changes, the people who were on Vine who like left Vine for YouTube and then got screwed by algorithm changes. Mm -hmm. All of them, like they're still around. They're still working in these spaces. They're still asking these questions because like their livelihoods really depend on it. When we were talking in May, there was a talent war because Microsoft mm -hmm. was trying to get into the business. They had a site called Mixer or a platform called Mixer. Facebook had entered. And then within a month or two after we talked, Microsoft said, actually, we're not going to yep. be in the live streaming business. And they'd paid Ninja tens of millions of dollars to do that. And and he got to keep his money and then go do something else. What, what did Microsoft bailing out 
of of live streaming mean to you and, and how has it affected or not affected the industry? I think that's a really good question. Um, I wrote a piece about it, uh, yeah, the next month in June. Uh, the title was Mixer Failed, Here's Why. The subhead is Let Me Count the Ways. But um, I, think, I think the interesting thing about like it's it's interesting that Microsoft sort of got out. Um, I think there were a lot of reports of internal conflicts at mm-hmm. Mixer. Um, it wasn't. It didn't seem like a, a site that was internally very healthy. I think, or like a part of Microsoft was internally very healthy. I think, um, you know, for the streamers that streamed on there, they you know they were blindsided um, when Mixer folded because you know Mixer was just like, hey, we're shutting the site down in like two weeks. Um, Good luck. We're and then like you know closer to the date they were like okay this is actually we're actually sending everybody to Facebook so like technically like Facebook acquired Mixer right um, and they made like a pathway for the Mixer partners who you know wanted to go to Facebook and gave some of them huge deals which is why some of them are still on Facebook um, but the majority of the Mixer people I, t- I talked to a bunch of them for this podcast that I that I was doing back then and I feel like the majority of the Mixer people were were shocked and blindsided and I think. You know, they they were facing down the prospect of having to restart their streaming careers on a site like Twitch. It's not necessarily rebuilding directly from scratch, but it's like almost like that. Um, and I think you know it upended the business or the streaming business writ large because, you know, like there wasn't there suddenly was like another competitor out of the ecosystem. It's basically just Twitch and Facebook now, um, and DLive, which is for people who storm the capital. Shrug. I guess there's there's also YouTube, but YouTube is, is its own whole. Isn't PewDiePie a DLive guy? Uh, he, was, he was, and then uh, YouTube snapped him back up as soon as that deal was over. He's back on, okay. Because they they realized they uh, fucked up. Um, but yeah, I think you know. Uh, let me. I'm looking at this piece. Let me see if I can find. Oh right, yeah. So I think the bigger the bigger problem with Mixer and the reason it failed was like pretty simple. It's like they they had uh, they had a class of partners who was you know attracting a large audience, a sustainable audience. But like it just couldn't grow. Like they couldn't scale, even though the technology was better. Like their streaming technology why, was way why better. Why Twitches couldn't they scale it? I, you know, it's it's really interesting. I think you know. I, I, here's here's my analysis uh, of it from June twenty third, twenty twenty. Quote: Mixer was not attracting viewers, and why should it? Because Twitch spent so long outside the mainstream. It's still outside it now, though it's closer than ever. Watching streams on Twitch could feel like an identity. Mixer, which mostly seemed positioned to, as the not-Twitch, didn't give viewers an identity around which they could rally. The other part of this, naturally, is Mixer focused on drawing streamers to its platform, but didn't spend much time promoting organic talent and growing their viewership. So they wanted it, they wanted it to go fast, and you're saying you can't just build you that thing just overnight. Go fast. Another way of asking the question, though, is, is live streaming a universe where Twitch is a big major player and other people are doing it too? Or is live streaming really gonna be Twitch? And if you wanna find an audience, they're there. If you wanna build an audience, they're there. It's gonna be hard to move that audience somewhere else. And so when we're talking about live streaming, we're just talking about Twitch. I, you know, I think I don't, I think that's a little bit reductive because I think, you know, there's an entire, there's an entire universe of live streamers on YouTube, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, They interface with the platform very differently. Um, I think Facebook actually has seen explosive growth over the last year. Um, It's still very small compared to Twitch. But it's you know it's like that there is a growing thing there. I think um, I think it's a good question. I think it's an open question. I think right now the yes it is Twitch and Twitch is live streaming basically. Um, but also they had you know as the business heads call it first mover advantage. Like they were sort of they were sort of the ones that professionalized it first. So last question. Sometime 
this year things are going to be close to normal. They'll be more or less where they were in late 2019, where you're not mm -hmm. thinking about contracting a virus all the time, and you're probably not wearing a mask that often, and you're probably going out and about and seeing your friends and family. What happens to live streaming at that point? Um, I think I, you know, I think it changes, but I think um, I think the way it changes is, on the one hand, people will be doing things, as you've mentioned. On the other hand, live streaming has become, or watching streams or streaming has become a part of many people's lives. And it's like, you know, a lot of the, the new streamers I've talked to have been like, you know, I never would have done this without the pandemic, but I really like this and I want to keep doing it. So I think, I think it'll be a wash. I mean, I think that you'll, like, a lot of the people who started will stay and the people who stuck with it will stay, I think, because it's part of their lives and part of their routines. Um, but I think, you know, I think more than anything, the pandemic has just added live streaming as a category of thing that we all know about. And I think that's the important thing. Bijan Steven, you work at The Verge. You're great. You're also live streaming on the Twitch and on the that's Twitter. True. Go follow them all there. You're great. Thanks for talking. I look forward to seeing you in real life, toasting. <laughs> Maybe we'll have a beverage together at some point in the near future. Thanks, man. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Bijan. Now here's Rich Greenfield. I'm here with Rich Greenfield. Welcome back, Rich. It's been just about a year since we last had you on. Um, I'm glad that you're healthy and, and hearty. You look well. It's uh, It's been a very interesting year, to say the very least. Um, not getting on a plane is sort of the weirdest part of it, I think. Yeah, there's many weird parts, but yes, I, I am. I am. Uh, I, I long for for trips to California. Um, when we had you on, we talked a lot about the movie theater business and, and whether people were going to stream things at home. And I do want to talk to you about that, but let's let's zoom out and go very big picture. A year into this, what in terms of how the media business would respond to the pandemic, what's the one thing that you got most right and what's the one thing that you got most wrong? Let's assess your crystal ball. Well, look, I think the, the thing that sort of has been most surprising about the pandemic has been that video time spent wasn't the winner. You know, people didn't actually sit at home and turn on their televisions and watch a lot. Streaming went up, but broadcast television, cable network television, ratings collapsed throughout the entire pandemic. So you just think you're stuck at home and you weren't really watching linear TV at all. You actually moved even faster towards streaming television. But the really shocking part is the big winner wasn't any form of television or video consumption at all. It was gaming. Gaming is where the explosive growth came in. So did the overall amount of time that the average person spent watching a screen, whether it's watching a television show on broadcast or streaming something on Hulu, Netflix, did that sort of stay put? Is that, is that what you're telling us? No, the, the number certainly grew. It, uh -huh. I think the, the, the surprise was that you would have thought that with people stuck at home, sports viewership, yep. broadcast TV, you would have thought that there would have been a rebound of like, hey, you're stuck at home. You what got nothing else, else to, to do. do? Right. Nothing else to do. Nowhere to go to dinner. You're stuck at home. And yeah, did Netflix see a surge in subscribers? Did Amazon and Disney Plus all see surges in subscribers? And did total, if you, if you were to limit the world to sort of premium video content, meaning broadcast TV, cable network TV, and streaming TV, that number certainly rose. It didn't rise as much because 
broadcast TV and cable television still right. collapsed. So, so there you have people sort of moving from broadcast to streaming. That sort of makes sense. The sports part is surprising. On the gaming front, I've heard a lot about gaming, gaming stocks and, and about-to-be stocks like IPO or are generating a lot of, uh, like Roblox are generating a lot of attention. Um, and I've spent a lot of time playing Fortnite. Most nights I play with a group of grown men. Um, I'm okay sharing that, but well, but that's about, that's interesting. Well, hold on, that's interesting in and of itself, right? It's not just kids. I think there is. This, it's pretty much kids. We are the only grown men playing Fortnite. It's pretty. It's it's we're we're quite aware of that. But here's my question: Is the spike in gaming? Is it kids who were pl gaming already, or whoever was already gaming, spending that much more time gaming, or has the gaming audience grown? The gaming audience is growing pretty meaningfully, actually. And you're seeing it age up. I mean, just something like Roblox, um, which my colleague and partner Brendan Ross wrote about this week. You know, the the number of people who are playing Roblox who are over the age of 13 is now a larger group post-pandemic than the entire group of players was in 2018. So, like, you're seeing players grow in totality, spend more time individually but also age up, which I think is really interesting. And do you think this is as simple as you're at home, you've watched television, you've streamed something, you either gamed a little bit or never gamed before, and someone sort of brings you in and you go, oh, this is a, also a fun way to pass time. Or is there something else, is there something about the gaming platforms themselves changing? I think I kind of go back to Mark Pincus and Zynga, and you may smile when I say that. But I think, go back to what, what Zynga sort of broke down in the early days of Facebook, remember? It wasn't really games. Like they weren't, these weren't like hardcore games where you were trying to like win per se. They were sort of ways to hang out with friends, connect with people, socialize, share an experience with other people. I feel like a lot of what's happening, you, you know, your discussion of with a couple of other grown men playing mm -hmm. Fortnite or Roblox, they're not really games where you're trying to quote unquote win. They're more of like hanging out in groups of people. And I think the pandemic has obviously shown the one thing that we're missing in the pandemic is socialization. And so normalizing the socializing aspect of, it's not even so much games, experiences. Normalizing virtual experience sharing, I think has been a very surprising takeaway. Is like, if you were to think about all of media and entertainment in the pandemic, it feels like that is one of the biggest, is that it normalized this behavior to a far wider group of people. This stuff was niche. It was for kids. It was kind of for young male kids, uh, boys, I think we call them. Um, and now it's, it's more acceptable for older men and some women to play. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I mean, like Minecraft's been around a long time, right? We've all, I mean, there was Minecon. I mean, these are not new things. I just think the growth has been explosive. And I don't think we're going back. I mean, I think that once you start to get immersed in these worlds, and it, so much of it occurs on mobile devices, I think this behavior sticks around and people are going to participate in bigger and bigger ways. And you think this, you think this sticks around post-pandemic, that when we can leave our house, when we can get on airplanes, when we can see people in the real world, we will still want to play Fortnite or Roblox or Minecraft. Yes, 100%. I think, you know, and if you look at sort of early signs, even if you looked at kind of Q2 versus Q4, and even into early Q1, growth is continuing even as lockdowns have eased all around the world. So I, I think the signs are is that this behavior, look, I don't know whether the growth rate will ever be what it was from Q4 to Q2 last year. That may never be achievable mm -hmm. in terms of just the step function. But I think sort of, 
there's a network effect, right? The more your friends are on these platforms, the more you want to be on these platforms. And the quality of the experiences is getting better and better. And they're evolving beyond games. And I think that's really the key. The You know, Among Us, it's a very light touch game. Like it's not, I mean, anyone could pick up Among Us in two minutes, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a way to sort of just hang out with a bunch of your friends and you're chatting while you're playing and the, the, you know, people are well, using Discord. Well, the light Discord. touch part of it is the big component, right? You don't have to invest time, and you can AOC Correct. can pick it up on that day, and you can get into it. Um, let's talk about movies and, and streaming, which is where we focused our attention a year ago. Um, and I think the the excitement at the time was that you could watch Trolls too at home for twenty. Bucks that, that was something. literally a year ago, right? I mean, right. that's where you are. So we were doing a lot of speculating about, okay, what is going to happen to the movie business? Are they going to, you know, just collapse the windows? Are you going to be able to stream everything at home? And we kind of got all of the above, right? Everyone, you know, various studios took various tacks. The most dramatic one, obviously, is Warner Brothers moving everything to HBO Max for at least all their movies day and date for at least a month. Um, and everyone else has sort of taken middle grounds. Um, were you surprised to see HBO go as far, uh, Warner Media go as far as they did? You know, I don't think you bring on Jason Kylar, uh, who is sort of the, you know, I think... There's probably an article that you probably remember reading called The Bad Boy of Media, uh, right? I mean, it was someone who was very disruptive when he was at Hulu. I wrote one called Is Jason Kyler Trying to Get Himself Fired? Okay, so exactly my point, Peter, right? Like, this is someone who was a known disruptor. If you're AT&T, why do you bring on a known disruptor to not just run the streaming business, but to run the entire business? I think the only reason you do that is because you truly recognize that you need to, you know, to quote Bezos, which is where Jason came from, you have to lean hard into, always be leaning hard into the future, right? You can't lean away from the future. And so I don't think it's that surprising. I think it's surprising that he actually pulled it off in many ways and, and got it done. What's your but, assessment look, of, how that, of how that worked? Um, the big, I mean, he was supposed to lead with Wonder Woman 1984, which by all accounts is a not good movie. So that seems like not ideal to launch with. Um, I've watched a, we've watched a couple of the HBO movies at home. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, we enjoyed a lot. I did. I saw it this weekend. I thought it was excellent. Yeah. It, um, on the other hand, it doesn't seem either like the, the, in terms of the way I interact with it or buzz wise that it has quite broken out for them the way they might imagine it would have. I guess the question is, um, think about it from the standpoint of viewership. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, I'm not a perfect believer in all Nielsen statistics, as I think you know, but let's just use what Nielsen's reported in terms of minutes watched. It would imply that there were 15 million households that watched Wonder Woman 1984. If you figure holiday time, you know, average number of people who might have watched this over holiday weeks, in just the first month of release, you probably had 45 million people stream Wonder Woman 1984 domestically. There was another uh, several million people that watched it in movie theaters, even back then when most movie theaters were closed. My point is, is that you might have had upwards of 50 million people who might have watched domestically that film. There was no way you were going to get those types of numbers any other way. And so, you know, I think the reality is if you're thinking about exposure, how many people are touching these films? There's no way that Wonder Woman 1984 would have been a $500 million domestic box office a year ago. It wasn't a good film, like you said. So the ability to watch films at no incremental cost means that the movies may be exposed to more people. My guess is 
the quote-unquote hatred of a bad movie is very different when you're not paying extra for it. And so you end up actually making people happy, increasing enjoyment, increasing happiness, which if you think about a streaming service, you want to grow subscribers and you want to make people engage more and be happier with the service so that they stay on and are willing to pay more every year in terms of the cost of the service. When they I think it accomplished that. When they rolled out, when they said, this is what we're doing, there was this huge backlash, at least publicly, in Hollywood. And there's some people who have real self-interest they were, you know, defending. And there are people who I think were doing some kabuki and sort of pronouncing things loudly on behalf of their clients. And we'll see how that sorts out. But that aside, Hollywood backlash aside, did what the, the, the... the one critique that sort of I thought about a lot was, all right, so you're 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 taking this domestic box office, whatever it would have been for for Wonder Woman, and you're trying to convert it into streaming subscriptions or something or retention. Do you think that math can work? Uh, the conversion math is hard. I mean, obviously, I don't think you have a whole lot of talent complaining about what they're getting paid by Netflix. I mean, mm-hmm. Netflix is making, I think, the three hundred million dollar Gray Man with the Russo brothers is being made right now. I mean, you're seeing sort of really incredible budgets being financed by streaming. Converting from a movie economic model that was previously set to go to theaters only and now converting into a hybrid model, uh, look, it's hard. I I don't, you know, whether it's agents, lawyers, I don't wish anybody, um, I I don't think that's an easy process. I do think at the end of the day, the real winner though, is the consumer and your listeners, right? The, the end result of all of this is that every single Hollywood studio is now talking about shorter windows, more flexible windows. And I think the key is getting content into the home. It's no longer going to take months the way it used to. Even Bob Chapik at Disney is out publicly saying, we're never going back to the where we used to be. So let's expand it, right? So Disney is still trying to put its biggest movies into theaters. The big uh, thing we're running up against is, is Black Widow in May. You know, that seemed crazily aggressive a couple months ago. Now seems much more realistic. Still really have no idea. People want to go to theaters. I think they want to go. But can movie studios, can they afford to sink hundreds of millions of dollars into movies that were supposed to be tentpole theatrical releases and and make that work in an all-streaming world or in a world where most people assume they can either watch it in the theaters or wait a little bit and see it at home? If you're not getting people to theaters, can you make Black Widows and Avatars 2s and 3s, etc.? I don't think PVOD, you know, sort of this premium access, what Disney calls it or what Universal has um, tried to do. I think charging people $20 or $30 extra to watch films at home is a very hard model. I think day and date and basically telling consumers, and this is sort of what, you know, what HBO is doing is essentially what Netflix has wanted to do for years, but really wasn't allowed to, right? Because the many producers and, and directors push back on it, but basically give consumers a choice. You want to watch it at home? watch at home, no extra cost. If Mm -hmm. you want to watch it in the theater, go buy a ticket and watch it in the theater. The end result of that, I think, is going to be economics. First of all, it's very consumer friendly. I think it will lead to content getting consumed by more people globally than in prior models. I mean, if you think about it, the biggest movie ever made was Avengers. It did 2.8 billion globally. Figure, let's just ballpark say, around an eight or $9 ticket price around the world. Somewhere around 300 million people saw Avengers all around the world. If you think about platforms like Netflix, they already reach 200 million households 
or 600 million people. And that's today. Disney's approaching 100 million, meaning 300 million people have access to Disney+. Plus. So the ability to expose content to far more people, and if you can expose it to far more people, subscription economics, by definition, are far superior to transactional economics. Okay, but this is where I'm still caught, and maybe you don't know the answer either, and that's why you're not answering it directly, which is if, if we go to a world where you have a reasonable expectation of watching Avengers at home instead of seeing it in a movie theater, it's your choice, sure. right? Clearly, you're not gonna get to $2.8 billion anymore, right? Some, some nope. number of people is gonna st will stay home and watch it. Um, and instead of generating eight or $9, which is split between the theater and the studio, they'll generate no additional extra income. Right. And, well, no, and they, this, well, there was a, I don't know if anything will ever be. I think there'll always be movie theaters and I yep. think there'll always be box office. Will an individual movie, I guess the answer to your question is, will an individual movie like Avengers Endgame, which made $900 million in reported profit for the Walt Disney Company, will you be able to make that much money on an individual project in the future? No, my guess is not. And so does that change the kind of movie you make then? If you can't, no. if, if, cause th because the whole point of Disney is to make $900 million on Avengers. Like that is their entire theatrical model up until now, at least, was to make those swings with those expectations, with things people know about. That's why they don't do, you know, indie movies. You uh, also don't have Maleficent where you lost, Maleficent 2, where you lost $200 sure, million. Sure, so but that's, but that's the you, business they're in, is, is, is making big budget movies with the expectation, sure. hope that they're going to make $900 million in profit. Sure. Uh, look, I think it's, it's, you know, I think in totality, Walt Disney's overall profitability will be far larger in that streaming world, meaning they can charge more on a subscription basis and have a far greater scale. So if you just look at Netflix revenues, dwarf the Walt Disney Company studio and Warner Brothers studio put together. So like in success, what Disney can create in terms of its global reach, revenue and profitability by moving towards streaming for new movies, they will get there. It's going to be a balance. And you see the wording, flexibility. We may never go back to the way it was. Windows are compressing. They know where they have to go, but it's a balance of walking it up. You know, it's, it's interesting, Peter. I heard um, Alan Braverman, who's the general counsel of the Walt Disney Company, gave an interview, a rare interview, uh, a couple months ago. And he actually commented that sort of when it was asked about sort of the most difficult issues he's had to deal with in his career at the Walt Disney Company. He actually said this conversion of the entire underlying economic model from a per transaction, you know, the way the business has been done with discrete economics to looking at it from a kind of a holistic package of product on a streaming service is really the most difficult issues he's had to deal with in his career at Disney. And I thought that was really telling in terms of the transformation the business is undergoing right now. That's really interesting. Do we think that anything snaps back? That when, when by the summer, fall, when everyone's comfortable walking around and most people aren't wearing masks anymore and everyone's vaccinated who wants to be vaccinated, that any of these industries, any of these consumption patterns that have changed that snap back to this is where we were in late 2019? You know, from a, if we're talking specifically about the movie business, I mean, I do think that as long as parents want to get away from their kids and kids want to get away from their parents, I do think that there'll be a movie business. Mm -hmm. But with shorter windows and, so, I mean, first of all, forget about even windows for a second. With so much incredible content, you know, think about what's happened in the last 12 months since you and I sat down. The amount of content available on streaming services, even leaving off first run movies, is incredible, right? Like there is just, 
You can't turn on the TV without seeing ads. Go to streaming. This is the hot new show over here. Paramount Plus and Discovery Plus and HBO Max and Peacock. I mean, it's the Golden Globes a few weeks ago was a nonstop ad for Peacock and even some Paramount Plus thrown in. The Super Bowl was a Paramount Plus ad. I mean, it, it is there is so much content available on top of the fact that windows are now shrinking on every studio, maybe to different degrees, but windows are shortening and the tech companies don't care about windows. Like they're gunning with either very short or no windows, whether it's Netflix or Amazon or Apple. I think the end result is you're never going to see attendance to movie theaters look like pre-pandemic. I think there may be an initial surge where everyone goes, oh my God, it's great to go to a movie theater again. But I think Mm -hmm. if you look at kind of the totality of 2022, I don't see, even with a great movie slate of releases, I don't think attendance levels could ever be the same given what's happened in streaming over the course of the last 12 months. So Rich, you you brought up the streaming wars. Um, You're a streaming wars expert. We've seen every big company now enter, every big media company enter. All of them say something like, we believe that there's going to be four or five or six big streaming companies and we want to be one of them. Um, which all sounds reasonably good. Uh, my colleague, Ronnie Mola, and I just published a, a chart uh, with data from Antenna, a uh, subscription analytics company. Full disclosure, Lightshed Ventures is an investor in Antenna. Uh, you're, you're, you're stepping on my, my Lightshed Ventures introduction. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> um, and one of the most, so they have really great, interesting charts on, on retention, on churn. Anyone who listens to this should be paying attention to them. One of the most interesting charts that we published with them said, here's the, you know, here's who's, here's how many people are subscribing to multiple services. And the overwhelming majority of streaming customers are subscribing to one. And maybe, you know, you, you could argue that a prime, you know, that you could have caveats around that, that maybe you should, that should be including prime video, et cetera. But it seems like they're all overestimating Americans' appetite for streaming subscriptions. So are they being overly optimistic or just Americans need to catch up to to the moguls' uh, anticipation? Well, t- two things. W- one is, I believe the antenna data is per person, right? And so sometimes you can have multiple sure. people in a house using different yep. credit cards or different yep. people. So, you know, you could be subscribing on your Amex while you're, you know, one service is running through your Comcast account or something mm-hmm. like that. And so it's just something to think about. Uh, the other piece of it that I think is really important is, you know, we've been big believers that as the bundle falls apart, you know, people often say to us, oh, my God, you're going to spend more aggregating all of these services in a digital world than you did in the bundle. Yeah. And it's such BS, honestly, Peter, because at the end of the day, first of all, all of the great content or the most compelling sort of really like big pro high profile content like Mandalorian and Stranger Things, all of that's only happening on streaming. You can't get that in the bundle. So it's sort of a false choice. But more importantly is flexibility. You don't have to subscribe to these services for the full year. I mean, yep. I was just talking to someone, if you want to watch Billions, because you love that show, watch Billions and then cancel. You like Succession on HBO Max? Yep. Sign up and cancel. I mean, look, I, I, I'm so, a full believer in this theory. I do think that people like me who do cycle in and out of Showtime based on a show, fairly s- small minority right now who are actively doing it for that reason, as opposed to like their credit card expires or something like that. Sure. Um, and yes, I do think that I don't. I think the idea of replicating the cable bundle is a false choice because you don't like the cable bundle. It's full of stuff. But the reason you don't I bring watch. it up and the reason I think it's important is that the reason you're seeing all of these streaming services invest in broader services, if you think about what HBO Max is trying to do, Mm -hmm. if you think about Paramount Plus versus CBS All Access, what all of these services are recognizing is that they have big churn problems. 
people come on, they try it, yep. maybe they watch a show or two, but they don't stick around. For many years, people would come to us, and I'm sure you heard the same thing. Netflix, they're idiots. Why are they spending so much money? They don't need to spend this much money. They waste all of this money on programming. Netflix is going to spend $17.5 billion on programming this year, not for the sheer, like, because they love just pissing money away. They spend it because you not just have to acquire new subscribers every day. You need to keep all of your existing subscribers entertained and paying increasingly more. And that takes a tremendous amount of programming all around the world. And I think that's sort of evidence of the fact that, sure, historically, we've only subscribed to maybe one or two of these things. They're trying to get you to subscribe to more. And the offset's going to be, remember, 75 million people are still paying $100 a month for the multi-channel bundle. As those dollars come down, you're going to redeploy spending towards things like more streaming services. It may not happen on a perfect one-to-one basis, but I think that's sort of what what happens over the course of the next several years. Yeah, I think they're being overly overly optimistic. I think it's going to be a, it's going to be Netflix, one other service, and then maybe you cycle in and out. Um, and by the way, look, I, I wouldn't know. be surprised if Disney was one service in three years, right? Like it's hard to imagine there needs to yeah. be a Disney Plus, a Hulu, and an ESPN Plus. It should just be a Right. So I don't know what the couple, name of it is. You're going to have a couple mega bundlers and then people on the edge. And if you really like, you know, horror, you get Shudder or whatever it is, or Quippy. Um, you've already teased your 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 move into venture capital. Let's let's give you a minute or two to tell people what you're doing these days. Well, I just like to have full disclosure anytime we're talking about sure. something we're invested in. And so I just think it's important from an independent standpoint. We're, you know, we're only investing in private companies. We've, I think as you, you know, actually, Here, I think let's, if we let's, go back. Let's, yeah, let's, let's set it up. So Lightshed Investment, uh, you guys have been doing research for a long time. You've been doing some investment on the side. Yep. And now Which you're doing a full- Which you've asked me about before. Yes. And you, now you're doing full-blown VC. You've, you, you've started okay. a VC fund. So we have a $75 million fund to focus on seed and, and Series A investing across the TMT sector. And 10 is a good example, uh, Podchaser, which is um, sort of, think of it as IMDV for the podcasting universe. Um, you know, we're going to be on the lookout for interesting, disruptive companies that are in the early stages. You know, I think what our research has done for many years is we've always been thinking about where the puck is going and trying to, you know, discern disruption. I mean, you remember our hashtag good luck bundle mm-hmm. when we were more of a heretic than where we are today with it sort of being um, commonplace in terms of most people or consensus viewpoint. So we're trying to basically look to the future and invest in the future and find companies that we can take advantage uh, of our thematic research approach without impacting our public research, actually make our public research on public companies stronger because we have a better understanding of where that disruption is happening in the private sphere. And so basically just elevating what we've been doing for the last 15 years, but elevating and actually being able to make much bigger bets than we could on our personal balance sheets. So the the difference is you were investing your own money into the skims of the world, and now you're doing that plus other people's money. And that's that's the only real difference. That is the real, and writing bigger checks. Writing bigger checks. So I have, and we've talked about this before, but I'll bring it up with you again, the, the, the conflict of interest question. People are always, and you, you have made your name in, in these worlds, this world, by making loud pronouncements about Disney in, in large part, but other, other folks as well, to large swings. You are also then investing in companies that are going to interact with some of the companies that you're, that you're um, covering. They're either competing with them or they're partnering with them or they're likely acquisition targets. So, you know, 
there's a version of this that says, look, no conflict, no interest. But how are you assuring either the people who are paying you for research or, or the portfolio companies that, that you can balance all this? Well, so from a public uh, subscriber standpoint, you know, from our clients, investing clients, our number one goal has always been to help them make money. So, you know, we are, first of all, we our venture fund does not have investments from ex C-suite executives. So senior executives, you know, in the executive office, CEOs, COOs, CFOs, we're not, we didn't take as LPs any of those executives. And so we wanted to keep that sort of, you know, independence from those executives. But more importantly, any company that we invest in that's acquired by a public company, we will not hold. We will basically sell or distribute immediately to our LPs. And so we'll keep that wall. In terms of sort of the theoretical conflict, I mean, I think you've known us for a long time, Peter. We're never shy about basically being very vocal around our opinions, whether that's public companies um, that we like on the long side or on the short side. And the same thing on the private sphere. I mean, I've been a, I've been a huge vocal supporter of podcasting. Have I looked at podcasting as a huge opportunity for Spotify? Absolutely. Uh, I've been very clear. I've been an investor in Wondery and was very happy with the acquisition by by Amazon. But the reality is, you know, the the private market investing makes our research stronger. And we would never, it makes no sense for us if our only goal is to help our public market clients make money. There is nothing we would do to like, let's just theoretically say, like a company in the private sphere, and then bash a public company, if our goal is to protect and help our clients make money, that doesn't make sense. Like our, our, our North Star is helping our investors make money, whether that's putting a buy, a sell, or shining a light on an early stage private yeah, company I that could the disrupt them. I imagine the conflict being praising a public CEO uh, while you're trying to get uh, your portfolio company acquired by that same CEO. It seems like a, a, more, a, more, likely, uh, a more likely conflict. Uh, you know, look, the reality is we're not we're not owning these companies, meaning we're not control shareholders mm -hmm. in these companies. We're basically making, you know, venture investments as relatively small investors in the scheme of things. And so, you know, look, all I can say is our independence is sort of what we've built our brand on over the course of the last, you know, I'd say over the last 25 years covering the sector. We've been in investing in private companies for at least the last 17 years. And so the challenges that you're bringing up have actually existed for the last 15 plus years. I think we've managed it incredibly well on both sides, and I think we'll continue to. Uh, the older you get, the more successful you get, the more the more of the stuff you, you got to navigate in all of life is my big word yeah. of wisdom there. Yeah, look, I, I think at the end of the day, knowledge is king. You know, wh what we always think about is the, what makes us better at our job every single day is knowing more. And I, I will say over the last... 20 plus years of really digging deeper and deeper into the world of private startups, it's made me a lot smarter about where the world is going. And it's led to our research at Lightshed being more differentiated than our peers. I mean, we met Daniel Ek, you know, in the earliest days of Spotify before they launched in the US. I met Evan Spiegel when they were 20 people. Um, I wish I had invested in those companies. But the reality is learning those companies at the earliest days has led to our research. You know, I, I go back to a 2007 piece that's on our website today of why every media company should buy Facebook. And it was authored in 2007. And it's like getting to know these early private disruptive companies is really what's made our research unique. It's fun to read your stuff, Rich. It's fun to talk to you. Thanks for coming back on. I love talking to you, Peter, anytime. 
Thanks again to Rich and Bijan and Brian and Joel and Jelani who produce and edit the show and our sponsors who bring it to you for zero dollars. They're awesome. And most of all, thanks to all of you. Um, thanks for writing me notes. Thanks for sending me tweets. Uh, I appreciate all of your criticism, constructive or not. Well, mostly constructive. Uh, and I love making the show because you guys like listening to it. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.